Good morning. My name is Mariah. Today's reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 4 through 18. Please follow along in your own Bibles or simply listen as the scriptures are read. Again, that's John, chapter 4, starting with verse 4. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. Parents and guardians of children in preschool through fourth grade, you are invited to escort your kids to the front of the room to join Kids Rock outside. As you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. <coughs> Hear the word of the Lord. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please, give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. But, sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, so good to be worshiping with you this morning. For those who don't know me, my name is Marcus. I was a part of the original launch team here and a part-time pastor on staff for High Rock Haverhill, now Haverhill Commons. And in that journey, I also met Caroline, my wife. And after getting married, we moved to New York for her job as a midwife in 2020. And so as her contract in New York came to an end this year and we were thinking about next steps, this church became clear as the place that we wanted to come back to. Uh, so fresh off the press, two years away, we're back. And uh, thank you, thank you. And I, I'm not saying this lightly. Um, it is so good to be back here. You are, you're our people. And so this ultimately for us was a move for you all, for people, this community. And as part of that comeback tour, I haven't been back for a month yet, but just like old times, Pastor Matt asked me to preach while he and Megan shared a long weekend away in Maine. So uh, I'm, I'm excited to continue reconnecting. I'm excited to get to know many of you. Uh, seriously, let's, let's hang out if I don't know you. And uh, I'm excited to open up the scriptures with you this morning too. 
Our passage this morning is a familiar story, but I think our study will be a new way to look at it. So before we get started, as is our custom, let's take a few beats of silence and for preparation and prayer. Christ, our, our King, our friend, our partner, we welcome you here this morning, Lord. We welcome you here. Lord, we come to you this morning with, uh, from different places, and wherever that is for some of us, we just give it all to you right now. Your voice is present in Scripture. Your voice is present in the ways that we think and talk about Scripture. Your voice is present here among us in conversations. Thank you for your presence, Lord. Grant us focus and stillness this morning so that we can see you and your presence more clearly. In your name we pray, amen. I want to open by addressing an important question. It's a question that's plagued humanity for centuries. What do you call this item? Okay, all right. My whole life, I called it a turner. It's correct name. And it wasn't until I got married that Caroline started referring to it as a spatula that I realized that many of you out there are confused and need help. You know, I love my wife so much that I really want the best for her. I want her to call it the correct name. So I refuse to call it a spatula in our home. But she loves me so much that she refuses to call it a turner. As you can see, we're the model for a selfless marriage here. Uh, a, few weeks, a few weekends ago, we were browsing a kitchen supply shop in Vermont, and I turned the corner only to find like a wall of these things. And on each handle, there is a label. And I ran right over to look at the label, and guess what each label said? Every single one of them was labeled turner. This was my moment, right? I did what any good husband would do in that moment. I pulled eight of them down off the shelf. I carried them across the store to find Caroline. And I proceeded to show her one by one that each one was called a turner so that she knew that she was wrong and we can change the vernacular in our home. You know, I, w I wasn't rubbing it in her face. I was just trying to help her. You know, she responded the only way someone could respond in that moment. Her eyes were opened. She hugged me. She thanked me for showing her the correct term. I pulled her up on my white horse, and we rode into the sunset that day. I was her hero that day. All right. <laughs> that is not what happened. Uh, I'm being very tongue-in-cheek here. You know, the image of my walking over to Caroline in a kitchen supply store holding an armful of kitchen tools, just to prove a point, I think highlights something that we all share. Most of us spend our lives assuming and even insisting that we already have the right answers. Right? That in the grand scheme of things, we ourselves are the right ones most of the time. They, whoever they are, they are the wrong ones. And if we're talking in the realm of turners and spatulas, it could be sort of fun to disagree and to debate. Right? How to load the dishwasher, how to fold the laundry, 
We can playfully spar with one another over drinks when stakes are low. But what about when stakes get a little higher? Things like what type of content should be shown in the media? COVID mask requirements. What songs should we sing? What songs shouldn't we sing on Sunday morning? It lets up the stakes even higher. Right? These are the kind of disagreements that can end relationship altogether. Faith, ethics, politics, the way to raise children, medical care, climate change. We, we know which side we're on, the correct side. But there's one problem. If you're right about everything, and I'm right about everything, and then we disagree, who's actually right? We can't both be right, right? And this is when conflict breaks out. It happens in churches, politics, families, project teams at work. So many of us do this. I've done this. Sometimes I don't even know that I'm doing this. We feel justified as to why we are right and why they are wrong. And over time, if we're not careful, their stories, voices, feelings, memories, and maybe even other people themselves stop mattering to us as much as our own rightness matters. Those people, the wrong people, they're not even people to us anymore. They're just positions, positions that we can marginalize and dismiss and push away. If we're not careful, we can choose positions over people. But we're far from the first ones to do this. If you'll open your Bibles with me, we're continuing our sermon series in the book of John that we're calling Come, See, Stay. We're in John chapter 4. It's the passage that Mariah just read for us this morning. And before we jump in, it's time to be real. I was not stoked to preach John 4. I mean, the story, it's a good one, don't get me wrong. It's just done a lot on Sunday morning. What more can I add here? Uh, is, is there something really new for me? Is there something really new for us here this morning? Well, it turns out that just in the last few years, new research has popped up that does add a little bit more to the discussion. So there's your teaser. We're going to come back to that in just a second. And before we get into the story, we have to establish the background of this because it's super important to this passage. The story takes place in Samaria. It's a country that's sandwiched between Jerusalem and Galilee. You can kind of see it on the map there two major religious hubs in the time of Jesus. And lots of traffic went back and forth between Jerusalem and Galilee because the shortest distance between the two is Samaria. Well, there's a problem. The Samaritans and the Jews did not want to interact with each other. Super brief background, Cliff Notes version. 700 years before Jesus, the Assyrians conquered Israel and took many Israelites into exile. Eventually, these exiled Israelites became what we now call the Jews. And when it came to Israelites still at home, right, those who weren't taken into exile, the Assyrians de decided to send a bunch of Assyrians back into Israel territory in hopes that the Israelites would intermarry with Assyrians and dilute their culture over time through assimilation. Crazy enough, the tactic worked really, really well. Back home in Israel, the Assyrians and Israelites mixed and produced a new people group known as the Samaritans. Years came and went, and the Samaritans and Jews developed largely similar but slightly different ways of life. Slightly different religious texts, cultural emphases, beliefs about the future. 
Over time, these small differences turned into severe animosity and contempt. From the Jewish perspective, the Samaritans are mudbloods, right? Fake Jews, products of Assyrian blood contaminating Israelite blood. From the Samaritan perspective, the Samaritans were just abandoned. The Jews just forgot about them, and then over time began to neglect them, a neglect that ultimately turned racist. There were um, contemporary Jewish writings at the time of Jesus that I was digging into, and these writings referred to Samaritans as dogs. And to the Jews, dogs aren't man's best friend, like we know them today. They are seen as subhuman. Even though the shortest distance between the Galilee and Jerusalem was through Samaria, many Jews still chose to take the long route around so that they wouldn't have to interact or talk to any Samaritan. Each side did agree on one thing, though. The other side were the bad guys. We have it right. You have it all wrong. You have gone astray. And over time, 700 years pass, the other side's stories, feelings, voices, memories, they all stopped mattering as much as rightness mattered. Positions mattered more than people. So let's carry all this background, right, into John 4 with us this morning. And almost every sermon I've heard on this passage will portray this woman as some sort of social outcast experiencing shame. And that shame is the barrier that prevents her from recognizing Jesus. And there is a lot of evidence to support this interpretation. I'm not saying it's wrong this morning. But based on your research, there's a, there may be a new way to fill in some of the gaps. That's worth considering. Remember, Samaritans were a people group that came from Assyrians mixing with Israelites. And get this. Unlike the Israelites, Assyrians allowed women into their religious leadership, Assyrian priestesses. In addition, just two years ago, so you're, you're, getting, you're getting fresh off the press biblical scholarship here this morning at Haverhill Commons, a woman named Dr. Bruton, she's a scholar at Brandeis University, she initiated a research project in which she re-examined a bunch of uh, archaeological inscriptions of ancient synagogues. It's kind of like how we have like, the Heinz Convention Center in Boston named after a guy named John Heinz, but it's the ancient equivalent for synagogues dedicated to people or named after people. And based on her research, she argues that there is evidence to assume that there were female religious leaders, priestesses, in Samaria. So this study, combined with what we already knew about Assyrian worship, has opened up a whole new batch of questions for us about this woman in John 4. What if the woman at the well is not a social outcast? What if she's actually a religious leader of some kind? And this passage at the well highlights a Jewish rabbi and a Samaritan priestess coming together with all that baggage coming in. After all, as we'll see in our passage, the bulk of their conversation does center around religious practices and debating the right way to worship. And I, I, I just love how Scripture can do this to us. You know, I think these new questions are such a powerful example of how Scripture can just ebb and flow the longer that we look at it and the longer that we spend time with it. And so if she is a priestess, maybe shame isn't the barrier preventing her from recognizing Jesus. Maybe, instead, she can't recognize Jesus because her Samaritan positions 
on Samaritan worship and Jewish relationship cloud her from recognizing the person in front of her, a Jewish man who actually happens to be Messiah. With me here? All right. So let's look at it. Let's start at verse 4. Jesus had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Suchar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water. The author is packing tons of detail into these opening verses. First, Jesus did not have to go through Samaria. Remember, it was common to go around Samaria. Jesus is choosing to go to Samaria. Yet the author writes, had to go to Samaria. Also, noontime is not the time that one goes to draw water. Drawing water is a strenuous task, and because of that, women would go together early in the morning or late afternoon. Yet this woman is here alone. And not only is she here alone, but she's alone with a man. Among Jews, men were never to speak to or touch any woman in public, much less a Samaritan woman. And they were alone at a well, a symbol for fertility and marriage. This carries all the innuendos that it would carry today. And not only is she alone with a man, but she's alone with a Jewish rabbi. And not only is she alone with a Jewish rabbi, she's alone with a Jewish rabbi at Jacob's well. This is an important religious location for both Jews and Samaritans. Think about our background here. Think about the 700 years of history and trauma and policy and racism that's all being shoved into these opening verses. This moment, this location. Think about the differences in theology and culture that each side is carrying into this moment. Now, think about if she's not a social outcast, but think about if she's instead a religious leader. Can you feel the tension? Like right from the get-go? This is about to be like a little showdown here. Jesus initiates with the woman. Please, give me a drink. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. And then she says something that seems kind of weird to us. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Let's pause here for a second, because this is kind of out of nowhere with this Jacob comment. Now all of a sudden we're talking about like ropes and buckets and stuff. Think about this from her point of view. So normally when drawing water back in the day, people would BYOB, bring your own bucket. But this woman sees a Jewish rabbi coming to the well without a bucket, asking her, a Samaritan, for a drink, and then saying a pseudo-spiritual statement about living water. And here's the piece that we're missing that may help connect the dots. There was a commentary, an ancient Jewish midrash, circulating at the time of this story 
that said that Jacob used to have so much favor with God that Jacob wouldn't need to lower a bucket down into the well. Right? For Jacob, the commentary says, the water in the well would rise all by itself. Jacob had so much favor with God that he wouldn't have to bring his own bucket. So when this woman sees Jesus coming to Jacob's well without a bucket, the first thing that comes to mind for her is this story about Jacob. You know, I think you can kind of read this moment as playful with her. I picture her saying it with a laugh. What, you think you're so much better with Jacob that you don't have to BYOB? <laughs> but remember the tension. Jewish Samaritan. On the surface, maybe she's playful. But beneath the surface, maybe her comment has some little zip to it, some sting. Look closer at her words here, right? She says, you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? This well was in Sumerian territory. Almost as if to say, what, you think you're so great as a Jew that God is just going to raise the water for you? Where's your bucket? And this is when I start to feel the music build a little bit. The showdown's about to start. Samaritans come out with the opening move. Action goes to Jesus, and Jesus doesn't seem to engage. Instead, Jesus doubles down on this living water idea. No, 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 I'm, I'm not like Jacob. Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water that I give will never become thirsty again. I love the woman's response. It's almost sarcastic, like she's saying it with an eye roll, is how I read it. She responds, please, sir, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again. I won't have to come here to get water. But remember the tension. It's hard to be simply sarcastic. It's hard to be simply pay playful when you have 700 years of animosity coming in behind you. And if this is a priestess, and this conversation is between two religious leaders, this is the part where I, again, I'm starting to perk up. Oh boy, Jewish versus Samaritan, it's about to go down. Jesus says, go and get your husband. Go and get your husband. Whoa. Where did that come from? This isn't about positions anymore. This isn't about Jewish and Samaritan anymore. Jesus is making this about her now. She's caught off guard. I, I don't have a husband, she says. Jesus says, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You have spoken the truth. I don't love the translation here. The English NLT translation, which is what we just read, sounds like Jesus has like a little stinky attitude and is trying to play this gotcha game with her. You know, in, in the original Greek, there's really no attitude. I, I, I'm going to put the ESV up here. I, ESV, I think, captures that better. The ESV says, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. I don't see a gotcha game. I don't sense judgment. Instead, it seems like Jesus is trying to steer the conversation away from the well into a new place. And look what she says next. So tell me, why is it that your Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship? while we Samaritans claim it's here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshipped. Okay, we were just talking about buckets and Jacob, and now we're talking about husbands, and now all of a sudden we're talking about mountains? That's random. 
but maybe it's not so random. She's doing what so many of us would do in this situation. She's trying to deflect Jesus' deflection, steer the conversation back to safer territory, away from her intimate details, away from her person, back to positions. It's not about me here, Rabbi. It's about what we represent. Jewish, Samaritan, who's got it right, me or you? All right, here we go again. I'm starting to feel excited for the showdown. What's Jesus going to do? Jesus replies, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. Jesus refuses to engage the question again. At this point, I'm getting sort of bothered. What do you mean it doesn't matter where you worship? (laughs) Yes, it matters, Jesus. It matters to a lot of people. And now it's time to settle the debate. Jew, Samaritan, correct, incorrect, right, wrong, Turner, spatula. Also, sidebar, between me and you, like, there's a correct answer to her question. You can just Google it. People pay big money to go to Bible school so they can answer questions just like the question that the woman has. And the Jesus that I picture in my head sometimes, the Jesus that does go to Bible school and goes to seminary and gets all the degrees, is the Jesus that says, is it Jerusalem or Gerizim? Answer, Jerusalem, period. Right, mic drop, Jesus moonwalks away from the well. (laughs) But Jesus doesn't do that. He just says, the time is coming when it will no longer matter where you worship. And this is when my light bulbs start flickering. This is when we can start to see this encounter differently. This is when we start to get what Jesus is doing, especially if this woman is a religious leader. Jesus refuses to lose this moment to a debate about mountains. Whether she is a priestess or not, he is not going to let himself or her get lost in a conversation about positions. He's here to see her, a person. You want to bring up mountains? No, 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 no. I want to talk about you. I want to talk about your heart. Are you well? How are you doing? Jesus knows what we all know deep down. This woman needs living water offered by Messiah, and that's not going to come through having the correct answers about which mountain to worship on. A debate about mountains is only going to get in the way of this conversation. And if this moment is lost to debate, the same debate that priestesses and rabbis are having everywhere else, she'll just see him the way that she sees every other Jew. He is a position to conquer. But Jesus wants this person to know that she's too important for that. And he wants us to know that too. Because we all have our Jews and our Samaritans, our heroes and our villains. And if we're going by the way of the world, we are told to wear our opinions proudly, ready at any moment to show the other side how wrong they are. Maybe for you, the villain is a polarizing opinion. Maybe it's a certain ethnicity or a generation that you just don't understand. Maybe for you, it is the one who hurt you deeply, the family member, the ex-boss, ex-boyfriend, ex-business partner. And over time, if we aren't careful, our opinions towards them are just going to harden. We don't care about their humanity. They're no longer people. They're just positions that have hurt us. They're positions that we need to conquer. And here's the ultimate kicker, okay? 
we may be correct. Your villain may, in fact, be believing or doing something that is wrong. But Jesus is asking a new set of questions. How are you treating them in your heart along the way? Are you hardened towards them, or are you soft towards them? A day is coming in which it doesn't matter what mountain you're worshiping on. What's most important are people. How do you treat the Samaritan out there? How do you treat the Samaritan here? How do you treat the Samaritan here? And, and hear me, I don't think that Jesus is saying that positions aren't important. You know, as believers, we are called to study, think critically. Our words matter. Our beliefs matter. Our beliefs are what holds us up and inspires us to push back against power and oppression. I also don't think that Jesus is saying to stop caring about positions. Sometimes somebody else may believe or act in a position that shuts you out. Sometimes somebody's position causes harm, mental, physical, emotional, real harm to you, your people group, your fellow man, your family, and the best thing that you can do is to separate from that person because of the positions. Positions, after all, will trickle down and impact people. Rather, Jesus wants us to consider the way that we are treating those who cause us harm. Are they a nameless, faceless position? Or are they just human beings? And through Jesus' death and resurrection, we are invited into a new kind of relationship, a new kind of way to see them. That new way is filled with grace, joy, patience, forgiveness, reconciliation, release, freedom. These things don't happen to positions. They happen to people. It's a way that is not about agreeing on the right things. It's a way that's not about Samaritan or Jew, Jerusalem or Gerizim, Turner or Spatula. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, it means that the exact moment that we become most frustrated with somebody else, the exact moment that we grow defensive or angry or judgmental, that is when we choose grace. Because of Jesus, we can give up our need to be correct in a moment. Or, seen from a different angle, because of Jesus, we can reject our fear of being wrong. Because of Jesus, we can look up from our positions on mountains and see a thirsty human being sitting across from us who needs living water. And yes, I know, this is, this is so hard. <laughs> this is really, really, really hard to do. I've been frustrated before. I've been hurt before. I know what it's like to feel justified that my way is the right way. And when you're deep in the throes of a nitty-gritty of a relationship, there aren't easy cookie-cutter sermons and preachers to give you a playbook to follow. And if that's you this morning, maybe the best thing that you can do is not to seek answers from me or from this text. Maybe it's just to ask questions. How's your heart? The, because of the gospel, we have the freedom to refuse the power that positions have on us a power that wants to change the way that we treat and think about another person, right? In Jesus' name, power or positions have no power over the way that we see and love the other. I love the way that this encounter with the woman ends here. Just then, his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, 
What do you want with her, or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Because Jesus saw her as more than a Samaritan, more than a position, she was able to see Jesus and see somebody who was no longer a Jewish rabbi. She saw a man. She saw Messiah, Savior of the world. She runs to the village to retrieve her Samaritan brothers and sisters, people who should hate everything a Jewish rabbi represents, on the off chance that they could come see Messiah too. Our sermon series that we're in is called Come, See, Stay. What a beautiful image that we have here of that movement. Come, see, stay. So as we close, I want to ask a series of questions. I'll read the questions out loud uh, and invite you to reflect on them for a few moments in silence before I close in prayer. Feel free to talk silently to the Lord. Feel free to write on something if you'd like. First, it starts with us. We can love only because Jesus first loved us. So how's your heart? How does Jesus need to cut through your defenses to get to your heart? What debates or mental gymnastics do you keep playing with Jesus that keep Jesus' grace and reconciliation at arm's length? Second, can you remember any topics or situations in which your focus on your rightness prevented you from seeing the person who's in front of you? Is there a pattern to your two topics? Is there a pattern to situations? Is there a pattern to relationship? I'll give us a time to reflect for a few moments in silence and then I'll close us in prayer. Jesus, Lord, we give you situations, we give you relationships right now, we give you names and faces. Lord, we give you moments of pain. We give you moments of confusion. We give you moments of frustration. Lord, we confess that so often that, Lord, that we just hate. Lord, so often we just refuse to see the person in front of us. We strip them 
of their stories, of their own trauma, of their own complexities, of their own humanity. Forgive us, Jesus. Lord, we invite you into hard, not cookie-cutter intricacies of relationships and dynamics. Lord, that place, too, is your kingdom. Lord, your way wants to break in there, too. And so anything that we can do to open the door, to let you in, anything that we can do to let our defenses down, to start letting you in, even if that starts with us, doesn't even involve somebody else, even if that starts with us, Lord, we need you there. We don't want to live in hate. We don't want to adopt a mindset that just sucks life out of us. Lord, come soon. Come in those relationships. Come in our hearts and our minds. Amen.